Chapter Thirteen of A Boy Crusoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Koval. A Boy Crusoe by Alan Eric. Chapter Thirteen. A Feathered Companion, Making a Fish Trap. Everything about my house was as I had left it. Nothing had been disturbed the overflowing stream not having reached it the vines around the stockade now completely covered it and the yams that i had planted in front of the stockade gate were thick and luxuriant the great bean-like leaves completely concealing the entrance the effects of the fever were fast leaving me and i grew strong rapidly there was much to do now that i was settled down at home i dug up the yams in front of the stockade gate and stored them in the house for future use then i carried out the couch and made a new one of fresh branches and grass more comfortable than the first had been i also made two fireplaces mere enclosures for keeping the coals in place these consisted of circular enclosures of stones brought from the stream each about three feet in diameter and one foot high one being in a corner of the house for use during rainy weather and the other in the enclosure of the stockade near the gate my next thought was to plant yams by the trunks of all the trees near the house this would furnish me an inexhaustible supply, and of a superior quality, as the vines would have plenty of chance to climb up and around the tree trunks. One day, while walking through the bush in search of pigeons, having succeeded in killing two, I came across several coconut palms of much smaller size than any I had yet seen. They were not more than fifteen feet high to the base of the leaf heads, and their tops were very spreading, much more so in proportion to the length of the trunks than in the case of the larger trees. But these all bore great bunches of nuts, and I began to wonder how the unripe nuts would taste, and whether they contained more water than the ripe ones. With but little difficulty I climbed one of them, and with my knife clipped the stems of several of the nuts which went tumbling to the ground. Descending, I cut off the husk of the end opposite the stem, until I could make a hole through the shell the latter was very thin and soft and the knife went through it easily my knife was always in excellent condition kept so by frequent sharpening on the stone which i used for striking fire to the tinder raising the nut as though it were a canteen i drank the water it was somewhat different from that of a ripe nut much sweeter more limpid and very cool and refreshing after the water was drained from the nut i cut it open when i found the whole inside lined with a whitish translucent pulp of the consistency of solid jelly this i found to be delicious but after having eaten a little rather sickish however i carried several of the unripe nuts to the house and soon became very fond of them i made frequent trips to the young palms and the water became my principal beverage while my only dessert was the jelly for which i carved a rude spoon from a piece of hard wood i noticed that the parrots were not so noisy as they had been before i left for the interior and for several weeks I was at a loss to account for it. But one evening, while returning from the water coconut pumps, I espied two diminutive parrots fluttering through the bush. They were young ones, and not quite able to fly, though nearly fledged. They would launch out from a limb, sometimes falling short of their next perch, and sometimes striking against a limb, when they would flutter to the ground, making small parrot-like cries. They were a beautiful green, with red wing feathers, and red breasts and necks the parent birds all the while remained near by as though encouraging the little ones in their attempts to fly i tried to catch one of them but they were sufficiently active to evade me successfully 
I felt a great desire to capture one and teach him to talk, for I sometimes longed for a companion to speak to. Finally I evolved a plan for catching one. I set to work to construct a net, for a snare would injure them. I prepared a great quantity of fibers from the coconut cloth, and with it wove a purse-shaped net, perhaps two feet in length. This was to be suspended to a limb of a tree, and baited with a piece of roast yam, suspended over the mouth of the bag, in such a manner that when the young parrot reached for it he would be almost sure to lose his balance and fall in. Its weight, together with the fluttering of the bird, would draw the mouth of the bag together and prevent its escape. This net cost me several weeks of work, but it was at last finished and ready to set. This I did very carefully, selecting a low limb in what seemed a favorite place for the parent birds to give flying lessons to the little ones. For several days the net remained undisturbed, and every morning I supplied it with a fresh white piece of yam. One morning, just at daylight, I was awakened by a great outcry of parrots, and feeling sure that one of the young birds had fallen into the net, I hastened toward it. Sure enough, the net had done its work, for it was bobbing about and swaying from the limb, while muffled little shrieks came from the nearly closed mouth, and from the trees around there arose a perfect babble of discordant cries of parrots, old and young. The two parent birds were perched on the limb over the net when I arrived, but on my approach they flew away a short distance, hurling cries of defiance at me. Carefully I cut the net clear of the limb, and carried it to the house the belligerent little parrot all the time fluttering and shrieking and striking at my hand whenever it was near the opening. I reproached myself for not thinking to make a cage for it when captured, and I was obliged to secure the opening and deposit the net in the house, while I made a cage for my future companion. This was not a difficult task. Going to the brook where the wild canes grew, I cut a quantity of them, and cutting them to the required length, I stuck them into the ground leaving spaces about two inches wide. The canes formed a small yard about two feet square. The top was covered with a piece of coconut cloth, the edges being tied all around to the upright canes. How to get the fighting bird out of the net and into the cage was the next question. I did not exactly relish the idea of putting my hand into the net, so finally I decided to lift one corner of the coconut cloth on the top of the cage, and loosening the mouth of the net inserted under the cloth, at the same time reversing the net. The scheme worked perfectly, and the little parrot tumbled into the cage, his feathers all ruffled. He was a curious little thing, and I laughed aloud as, without uttering a sound, he proceeded to smooth his feathers, and then to circumnavigate the cage. He then retired a little from the bars, and regarded me with the utmost seriousness, canting his head, looking at me first with one eye and then the other. Then he began to dress his feathers, evidently resolved to make the best of it all, and to feel perfectly at home from the first. I made my pet a little runway outside the wall of the house, constructing it in the same manner as I had the cage, covering it half with cloth and the remainder with canes, so he could have both sun and shade. This enclosure I connected with the cage by cutting a square hole through the wall of the house. As the weeks passed, the parrot grew. His wing and tail feathers developed, and he became very beautiful. He enjoyed his new home, apparently, spending a part of his time outside and part inside. He enjoyed the sunshine, but would never remain long in it. He preferred the shade of the cloth-covered portion. Nights he always passed inside, and I made a perch for him to sleep on. It was simply a cane passing through the cage and securely fastened to a bar on each side. Hours and hours he would spend swinging on this bar over and over, 
holding on with his claws and then with his stubby beak. I fed him on yams, bananas, and oranges, but the banana was his favorite food. Every day I talked to him, telling him all about the shipwreck, discussing with him the various tasks that occupied me, and the probability of my rescue. I named him Puffball on account of his shape when captured, and then I called him simply Puff. Puff listened patiently to all I had to say, frequently interjecting a sharp comment. Sometimes he would interrupt me by setting up a loud screeching, and I always had to cease talking when Puff had the floor. For weeks he did not appear to attempt to imitate my words, and I began to despair of teaching him to talk, when one morning, as I lay awake for a few minutes before arising, I heard him softly chattering to himself. I listened and heard him say, Puff, Puff, very distinctly. I was delighted, and going to the cage, I complimented him on his first attempt. Once while bathing in the stream, I noticed for the first time several fish gliding through a quiet pool. From the momentary glance I had of them, they appeared to resemble the white perch of the lakes at home. This opportunity to add to my larder could not be neglected, and I set to work to devise a plan for capturing them. I thought at first of making a hook from thorns, but this idea was abandoned as not apt to be practical, and I hit upon a plan for making a net. The first inspiration gradually developed into a trap, and took definite shape as I revolved the matter in my mind. It was a simple device, but I spent much time and patience in perfecting it. First selecting one of the supple vines about half an inch in thickness, I bent it into the form of a hoop, two feet in diameter, uniting the two ends by lashing them with smaller vines. Then with the aid of a sharp thorn and thread from the fiber of the coconut, I sewed together pieces of the coconut cloth so as to make a bag three feet long with an opening of the same diameter as the hoop. Then I sewed the edge of the opening of the bag firmly to the hoop, which kept the bag rigidly open. Next, from more vines, I wove a funnel-shaped basket, the larger end fitting inside the hoop, while the smaller end, which was inserted into the bag, had an opening about six inches in diameter. The larger end of this basket, which was like an inverted cone, was lashed to the hoop all around. This was my fish trap, and as soon as it was ready, I took it to the brook. The water was normally low, and finding the narrowest place in the current, I built across it a wall of stones, having an opening in the center of the wall, in width just a little less than the diameter of the hoop. The trap was then set into this opening, with the mouth pointing upstream, the gentle current keeping the bag distended, while the hoop projecting across the edges of the opening in the wall held the bag in position. I expected that the fish, swimming downstream, finding no other passage, would enter the opening of the bag and pass through the small opening in the lower end of the cone, thereby becoming imprisoned. From similar devices that my brother and myself had made and used in the brooks at home, I knew that once inside the fish would huddle in the lower end of the bag and make no effort to repass through the opening in the end of the cone. End of chapter 13